Vatten and Brexit. Hello and welcome to Batten and Brexit with the UKIP MEP for London and the UKIP leader, Gerard Batten. Hello to you, Gerard. Hello to everybody listening. <laughs> Indeed. This series brought to you by the EFDD Group in the European Parliament. Uh, the idea, of course, as you will know by now, is that each episode, Gerard will talk about the issues of EU policy that either riled him or entreat him or need to be said. And there's quite a lot on the list here, uh, Gerard. And I suppose we should start with the fact that you are now the star of a reality TV show. <laughs> well, but it's not Love Island. One of the stars. Um, this is the Carry On Brussels on Channel 4. The second of three episodes went out. And what they did for several months was to follow MEPs around the Parliament, each one from a different party, um, to talk about Brexit. And it wasn't so much about the nuts and bolts of the things, but the personal motivations and the personalities concerned. And as the Brexit spokesman, they chose, chose me. And this was long before I was ever mooted to be, you know, the, the leader of UKIP. Um, and, but, what you know, I, I did my best in that to put the case for Brexit, but I was exceeded, I'm afraid. Somebody did a much better job than me. And it was the one Lib Dem MEP... Uh, who some by some strange quirk of fortune managed to keep her seat back in 2014 when the other 11 Lib Dems all lost theirs, some vagary of the electoral system. And she stayed there, a lady called Catherine Bearder. And as I said, she did far more to promote Brexit than I ever could because she was filmed <laughs> in a meeting with Giva Hofstadt, uh, the arched federalist of the whole place, who's actually supposed to be the liaison man between the Parliament and uh, the Brexit negotiators, um, and A.C. Grayling, who I believe is supposed to be a philosopher, and uh, talking about how they can make Brexit, the Brexit negotiations so bad, so tough and so onerous on the UK that we wouldn't want to leave. And I, <laughs> can you believe it? You know, so it was... It, well, you've got to laugh, otherwise you cry. There you've got somebody, uh, British, elected British... MEP, albeit somebody who wants the European Union, conspiring with the EU about how to overturn how the, did, um, how the did result AC of the referendum. How did Grayling get a place at the, the table on this? Well, I think if you are a you know a very vocal, well-known uh, Remainer, then they'll entertain you, and they'll talk to you, and, and you know kind of get whatever support they can back in the UK to you know in the propaganda war to overturn the Brexit result. We'll come to uh, external characters like George Soros in just yeah. a, a second on this. Talk about the Electoral Commission. Yeah, this is a story that came up during the week. I think last weekend this came up, um, where the Electoral Commission has put aside £829,000 to plan for the 2019 European elections. Those elections will be, I, can't, I think the, it will be a date in early June, actual polling day, it usually is. Um, well, how can we plan to run in the European elections next June when we're supposed to be leaving on the 29th of March 2019. Let me quote you, if I can, what the Electoral Commission said. A provision in our budget was made so that the Commission has the necessary funds to deliver our function at a European parliamentary election in the unlikely event that they go ahead. Uh, no money has been spent on preparing for European elections, in, parliamentary elections in 2019 and the Commission does not anticipate spending any money pending the UK government repealing the necessary legislation. And the key bit there is pending the UK government repealing the necessary legislation because in order for there to be no European elections next year, the government and Parliament has to repeal the European Elections Act 2002. Now that, so far as I can find out, that repeal is dependent on being included in the withdrawal bill. I mean, 
when I said how we should leave, I said the government should repeal this straight away to show uh, good faith that it has no intention of us contesting those elections and being in. But as far as I know, they haven't done that. It's dependent on the withdrawal bill. And, of course, the withdrawal bill is dependent upon a vote in the European Parliament. That withdrawal bill could be rejected at the end of this year. But the government has no backup plan. It has no plan for what it's going to do if the European Parliament rejects the withdrawal agreement. So what happens then? Well, we're back to square one, where we were on the 24th of June 2016. Uh, and what will May actually do, if anything, we have no idea. So this is why the Electoral Commission has put aside this money Although they're saying they're not making active plans, they've got a budget there just in case they have to spend it for their participation in these elections, of overseeing the whole thing. And I did hear this morning uh, a totally unsubstantiated report, but um, somebody came to me and said that they understand that money is being put aside in local authorities in order to contest, to pay for these elections to be contested, because obviously votes have to be collected, they have to be counted, shipped off to wherever they are. So you could be still counted. be an MEP? Uh, no, right? we won't, because UKIP's policy is that we leave on the 29th of March 2019. I attended a meeting with the um, officials of the Parliament two weeks ago in which I went through the details of how they're going to close us down and how we I pay, the key thing for me was how I'm going to pay, you know, the severance pay and whatever uh, of, of my employees. And it's all being planned as far as the Parliament's concerned that we're not there on the 29th of March 2019. So if the Parliament rejects the withdrawal bill, if Mrs May doesn't have a backup plan, if the Act isn't repealed and we find that it's still on the statute book, Britain is still then legally supposed to contest these elections, it's going to be one hell of a mess. (laughs) So fast forward a year from now. Well, a year from now, we will be past the uh, the date when all the nominations have to go in and uh, probably be at the end of the actual campaign to fight the election. So it would be very interesting to see where we are. But as leader of UKIP, I have the party totally behind me in that we expect the country to leave at the end of March 2019. All of our MEPs will be out of a job, and I hope some of them will be trying to get themselves elected to our Westminster Parliament in the election that will come sometime after that. Who's George Soros? Well, that's an interesting question, yes, because he's been in the news recently as well, hasn't he? I mean, he is this um, billionaire who's very, very much an arch-federalist who wants Britain to stay in the European Union. He wants the European Union to survive. And he is uh, the founder of something called the Open Society Foundation. And what he wants, I mean, he now has said that he's he's already spent a great deal of money. I think that's so by... I saw that he had spent about... £800,000 on pro-EU groups so far, and he spends 800 k on these groups supporting anti-Brexit campaigns. He's now going to spend more money. And what he said is he wants a meaningful vote by Parliament on the final withdrawal bill. Um, now, if I can quote what George Soros said, I've got a quote here as well, if you just bear with me for a minute. Um, Best for Britain fought for and helped to win a meaningful parliamentary vote which includes the option of not leaving at all. This would be good for Britain but would also render Europe a great service by rescinding Brexit and not creating a hard-to-fill hole in the European budget. Well, there you are. He wants to overturn the referendum result and he's worried about the EU being short of money when we leave. And just one further thing that he said, 
Uh, Soros said that he feared that the EU could be heading towards another major financial crisis triggered by austerity and populist parties intent on blowing the bloc apart. Uh, So you have where he's coming from. He wants to overturn the vote. This idea of a meaningful vote on the withdrawal agreement. Well, of course, I am fully expecting the withdrawal agreement not to be much of a withdrawal agreement. What I'm fully expecting is some kind of stitch-up whereby we end up paying money to the EU, we probably still have open borders and still obey a lot of EU laws. I certainly wouldn't want that, and what I want to see is a real withdrawal agreement. But if Parliament votes against whatever Mrs May comes up with, it means that nothing happens. In a way, that could be good, because then the government have to say, right, OK, we're actually leaving uh, under WTO terms, but then is Parliament going to have a block a vote on that, and they're going to block that? I mean, one scenario for this and one that I've anticipated and written about in the last few years is that we could then head towards a general election where Mrs May says you either accept me or my not really leaving the EU withdrawal agreement or you get Jeremy Cormyn and his rabid Marxists um, and therefore we get a not very good withdrawal bill which would have been put to the country so it'd be difficult for Parliament to vote against that or we get Jeremy Corbyn who ironically considering he was always an anti EU campaigner for for the last 40 years, as I've been, uh, will then actually keep the Britain in the European Union anyway, because that's what his party wants. So we keep coming back to the same scenario. It's a complete mess. And the reason it's a complete mess is not because Brexit's wrong, but because we don't have a government or a political establishment or a House of Commons or a House of Lords that actually wants to implement it. And that's the problem. So how would somebody like George Soros feel about what's been going on in Italy? Well, I think he'd be very, very concerned about it because what it actually has happened in Italy in the last uh, few hours is that the, it's going to, they're going to form the first Eurosceptic government, which will be made up of these two parties, the Liga and the Five Star. Now, we're well acquainted with them, UKIP, because in our first term in the Parliament, we were in a group with the, what was then called the Liga Nord, which was has now become the Liga, um, which was... A mildly Eurosceptic party then, they've got much stronger on it, and the Five Star, we're now in the EFDD group with the Five Star. So we've had a long association with these people, and Italy is rebelling against the EU because of the damage that it's doing to their country, particularly being in the Eurozone. Italian bonds dropped sharply on Tuesday, pushing borrowing costs up. Uh, they have very high unemployment, especially youth unemployment, because of austerity and membership of the uh, Eurozone. And of course, they've also got what is no longer mass immigration, but really is invasion from Africa. You've seen the scenes in, which you won't see a lot on the mainstream news, but you will on Twitter, uh, of tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people turning up from Africa and the Middle East in Italy, as they are in France. Totally unsustainable. Most of these are not refugee families. They are young men. They are economic migrants. And Italy is being swamped by these people, and they are getting very upset about it. So there's a crisis in the Eurozone, there's a social crisis, and I think that we could see the beginning, it could come very quickly actually, the trigger that brings about the collapse of the Eurozone. Because financially, economically, it's not really supportable. It's all been kept going on funny money, loaned from the European Central Bank, these massive debts that places like Greece, Italy, Portugal have got in order to sustain it. Uh, And I think it could come very quickly and it could collapse. And that isn't actually going to be good for anybody because there'll be a lot of fallout from that. But then the euro was itself an idiotic idea to start with. You can't have a large number of countries all sharing the same economic policy, the same interest rates, the same external exchange rates. It just would never work. But at some point it is all going to come apart. 
There is another battle, of course, being fought, and that's a trade one. Trump has imposed aluminium and steel tariffs of 25%. Now, whatever the rights and wrongs of that are, and you hear different arguments, what the European politicians don't get about Trump is that he actually promised the electors something, and he's going to deliver. That was his election promise, and he's going to deliver it. And, of course, they work on the basis that you make promises and then you forget about them all afterwards in the way that Mrs May promised that she was going to take us out of the European Union and 2017 general election, and what's happened since is very little. Um, so that's what I don't get about him. And, of course, you've had Mr Juncker threatening tariffs now on getting a bit silly, I think. Mr Juncker saying he's going to retaliate by putting tariffs on Harley-Davidson motorbikes, jeans and bourbon. Well, I'm not sure Trump's worried about that because give you an idea the existing tariffs on cars if you are exporting cars from the US to the EU there's a 10% duty but if you're exporting cars from the EU to the US there's a 2.5% duty so Trump's got some reasons for actually wanting some adjustments in these things um, and as I said there are arguments to uh, you know, for and against what he's intending to do. Uh, but you can't uh, expect him to sit back and do nothing if he thinks that e uh, USA jobs are being threatened and their economic interests are being threatened. Whereas, of course, in Britain we are expected to do nothing because we're supposed to put up with it all in the greater cause of the EU. Um, and, of course, uh, interestingly, Juncker, his officials have removed his questions and answer session from his website because he made remarks about Italy and he said something like, you know, the Italians have to work more and have less corruption. Well, good luck with the less corruption bit. But, <laughs> uh, but of course, that's politically incorrect. And, and funnily enough, uh, my colleague was in a, in a committee meeting this week in Strasbourg and sent me a funny uh, message afterwards. And he said in this, uh, in this uh, committee, I think it was the Economics Committee, uh, he said that one of the, the Germans said this can't be tolerated and we have to take over and march on Italy, march on Rome. <laughs> and he said it caused uproar in the committee meeting. I'm sadly I, I wasn't there, it wasn't my committee, I didn't see it, I wasn't there. Um, but all a good a bit of fun. What is World Trade Organization Rule 24? Uh, well, this is a this is a rule actually which um, I, I was aware of, and then um, Greece Mog has been talking about this because when we leave the EU, this idea that we're off a cliff edge and all this nonsense. Well, we could reach an agreement with them if they were willing to reach one with us. But even under WTO terms, it does say that if you come out of an agreement and you need to renegotiate a new one, the terms of the old one can stand for up to ten years while you're renegotiating the terms of a new one. Uh, so there again, it's one of these things where. There isn't really a problem. It's just a problem being created by the European Union because it doesn't want us to leave. Uh, final point, you've written Tommy Robinson as an and finally story here. Well, I wanted to say something about this because I've had... Uh, you know, he's not one of my constituents, but I have been involved in this controversy that's been surrounding him recently. And a lot of people support me on that, and I do get a little bit of criticism. So if I could just explain that. You know, I'm not a supporter of Tommy Robinson as such. I support what he's trying to do, which is draw attention to some of the things that are going on in, in our country today, particularly this industrialised sexual... It's called sexual grooming, but it's actually sexual slavery of little underage girls uh, by a certain section of the community, predominantly. Uh, and I think that he needs to be supported. In terms of what he's done recently, yes, technically he was in breach of his contempt of court, uh, yes, he sailed too far, to, close to the wind and went a bit too far. But what he was trying to do in, in publicise these trials and, and these cases that are going on is actually a public service. And I think he got a disproportionate sentence. He's been given 13 months. 
and really he's been prosecuted more for who he is and what he says rather than his crime. When the verdict of history is delivered, if it ever is on this, I think we'll find that Tommy Robinson was on the right side of the argument, even though his way of doing it may not have been uh, you know, entirely one that we would endorse um, or, uh, or sanction. But I think that he's very heroic, he's brave in what he's trying to do and to stand up to these uh, these gangs of people. He faces attack on the street. Uh, you know, he's, one thing that concerns us very much, and why I wanted to raise it now, is the safe, his safety in prison. Because if he's put in prison where there are Muslim gangs, then his life is at risk. They've already tried to murder him in prison. Um, and In fact, my colleague Malcolm Lord Pearson was instrumental in making that not happen by putting pressure on the Home Office to get him moved when he was in another prison. And what Malcolm has said uh, at the weekend is that if, he's, if Tommy Robinson comes to any harm, if he's murdered or injured, he will take out a private prosecution against the Home Secretary for being an accessory or negligent in his duty in protecting him. Now, I don't far, know how far that would get in the courts, but Malcolm's drawing attention to this and saying that he needs to be protected while he's in prison. What a lot of people may not be aware of of is that Muslim gangs now hold sway. Criminal gangs hold sway in many of our prisons. There's a phenomenon amongst non-Muslim prisons of called taking the mat, which means that they adopt, at least nominally, Islam in order for their own protection inside prison. And if anybody wants to know the truth about Tommy Robinson, I think, or his version of events anyway, read his book, Enemy of the State, which I think is more a case of the enemy being uh, the state being his enemy rather than him being the enemy of the state. I mean, there are quite shocking revelations in that about what goes on. That's it for this episode. If you'd like to get in touch with Gerard, he's on Twitter at Gerard Batten MEP. And your website is www.gerardbattenmep.co.uk. And thank you to everybody who's listening. Mm-hmm.